0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They take care of our air conditioning And they do a great job. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of historycentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. And, of course, Afghanistan is consuming the news right now. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Ed- Education. we are talking about hyperinflation. And Lee Edwards, distinguished fellow in conservative thought at the Heritage Foundation, will be talking about uh, what's going on in Cuba. It is August the 16th and on this day in 1896, while salmon fishing near the Klondike River in Canada's Yukon Territory on August the 16th, night uh, 1896, George Carmack reportedly spotted nuggets of gold in a creek bed. His lucky discovery sparked the last great gold rush in the American West. Hoping to cash in on reported gold strikes in Alaska, Carmack had to travel there from California in 1881. After running into a dead end, he headed north into the isolated Yukon Territory, just across the Canadian border. In 1896, another prospector, Robert Henderson, told Carmack of finding gold in a tributary of the Klondike River. Carmack headed into the region with two Native American companions, known as Scoopum Jim and Tagish. Charlie, on August the sixteenth, while camping near Rabbit Creek, Carmack reportedly spotted a nugget of gold jutting out from the creek's bank. His two companions later agreed that Skokum Jim, Carmack's brother-in-law, actually made the discovery. Regardless of who spotted the gold first, the three men soon found that the rock near the creek bed was thick with gold deposits. They staked their claim there following the following day. News of the gold strike spread fast across Canada and into the United States, and over the next two years. As many as 50,000 would be miners arrived in the region. Rabbit Creek was named Bonanza, and even, or renamed, I should say, and even uh, more gold was discovered in another Klondike tributary dubbed El Dorado. Klondike fever reached its height in the United States in mid July 1897 when two steamships arrived from the, Yukon, uh, from the Yukon in San Francisco and Seattle, bringing a total of more than two tons of gold. Thousands of eager young men brought elaborate Yukon outfits, kits assembled by clever marketers containing food, clothing, tools, and other necessary equipment, and set out on their way north. Few of of these would find what they were looking for, as most of the land in the region had already been claimed. One of the unsuccessful gold seekers was 21-year-old Jack London, whose short stories based on his Klondike experience became his first book, The Son of the Wolf, and of course my favorite, The Call of the Wild by Jack London. <clears throat> For his part, <clears throat> Carmack became rich off his discovery, leaving the Yukon with $1 million worth of gold. Many individual miners in the Klondike eventually sold their stakes to mining companies who had the resources and machinery to access more gold. Large scale gold mining in the Yukon Territory didn't end until 1966, and by that time, the region had yielded some $250 million in gold today some 200 small gold mines still operate in the region. What an interesting story. Well uh, of course Afghanistan is consuming the news right now as the as well as this administration's response but Taliban officials declared victory in the restoration of the Islamic emirate of Afghanistan after occupying the presidential palace in Kabul on Sunday appearing in a Twitter video alongside it by the way uh, <laughs> how come? The Taliban has a Twitter account, and the President of the United States, uh, President Trump, doesn't. In any event, uh, they had a Twitter video alongside other Taliban leaders. Uh, The group's account co-founder pronounced victory in a battle for the nation. We have achieved an unexpected victory, he said. Now is the time to test to show how we serve our people and ensure their future in the best possible way. Right. Well, Baradar said that the uh, Taliban had appointed him to be leader of Afghanistan and take the reins of the government. Pakistani authorities arrested Baradar in 2010, but freed him in 2018 under pressure from the United States. That's interesting. The Taliban's official documents have long referred to the group as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, as it claims to be the legitimate government of the country, as opposed to the now-defunct U.S.-based backed republic. A restored Islamic emirate will likely exercise stronger control over the country than it did before the U.S. invasion. The Taliban regime, which ruled most of the country from 1996 to 2001, never exercised complete territorial control within Afghanistan's official borders. Much of the Northeast was under the control of anti-Taliban militants at the time of the U.S. invasion. Those groups and holdout territories have, however, evaporated. In early July, the Taliban swept through ba- uh, Batak Adeshkan, uh, formerly the center of the fiercest resistance against the Taliban pre-invasion, taking many of its districts without a fight. Afghan uh, soldiers defected and deserted in droves, many fleeing in the neighboring uh, Tajikistan. Long War Journal, an independent group dedicated to mapping the Afghanistan war, asserts that the Taliban currently controls or maintains a heavy presence in almost 90% of the country. Uh, including nearly all the territories that resisted Islamic Emirate. Afghan President Ashif Ghani fled the country Sunday morning after, uh, as Taliban forces entered the city, and it's reportedly now that he's in Uzbekistan. Uh, He later posted a message on Facebook explaining he left to prevent further bloodshed, maybe his own. (laughs) Today I came across a tough choice, he said. I had to face the armed Taliban who wanted to enter the palace or leave the country I had to. Dedic- I have dedicated my country to in protecting and nurturing for the last 20 years. If left unchecked, the countless patriots would be martyred, and the city of Kabul would be devastated, resulting in a major humanitarian catastrophe in the 6 million strong city. The Taliban has made it clear that they were ready to carry out a bloody attack on all of Kabul, and the people of Kabul, to oust me, in order to prevent a flood of bloodshed I decided to leave. Interesting. Well, in July, U.S. President Joe Biden insisted that the Afghan government could sustain itself and that its fall to the Taliban was not inevitable. He went on to deny the prospect of a hasty evacuation of American personnel under fire and denounce comparisons to the Vietnam War and the fall of Saigon. The Taliban is not North Vietnamese Army, Biden said. They are not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance, he said, where you are going to see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy in the United States from Afghanistan. Well, of course, like happened last night. Personnel serving in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul were airlifted out of the country via helicopter on Sunday morning. The U.S. ambassador reportedly abandoned the embassy and departed for airport the same day. What a mess. I understand that 60,000 people were lined up at the airport trying to get on airplanes that would accommodate 300 passengers. It's totally, total chaos, airlifting, members of the embassy off of the roof, just like in Saigon. And of course, the President Joe Biden will remain hidden as his presidential retreat in Camp David through Monday, according to the White House, as the Taliban swiftly sieved control of Afghanistan. President's Daily Guidance for Monday indicated Biden will remain at Camp David for at least one more day with no public events scheduled. Can you believe that? He's not addressing the nation. But a senior administration official indicated to reporters Sunday evening that Biden might address the country in the next few days, according to a report. On Saturday, the White House released a 600-word statement from Biden defending his decision to leave Afghanistan and blaming former President Donald Trump for empowering the Taliban. Can you believe that? On Sunday, the White House sent Secretary of State Tony Blinken to speak about the crisis on Sunday in cable network shows. But Biden has remained off camera as images and footage of the Taliban entering Kabul flooded onto various forms of media. Jack Prozovic, who is the uh, editor of uh, Human uh, Events, uh, says that uh, Biden asked uh, Kamala Harris to make some comments about what happened she said she refused. She said she's focusing on Haiti. (laughs) So she didn't make comments. And apparently, uh, there's a little distress between the administration and uh, vice president and the president. And uh, nobody can make up their minds about what's going on, apparently. So uh, right now, the president is mum. He's not saying anything except for that 600-word statement. What a shame. President... uh, Former President Donald Trump on Sunday called for President Joe Biden to resign in disgrace over the rapid collapse of the us backed Afghan government following the uh, pullout from American troops. In the statement issued Sunday afternoon through Trump's Save America PAC, the former president also pointed to multiple other issues he has with the Democrat who legitimately is to hold the office is still in question. Here's the quote. It's time for Joe Biden to resign in disgrace for what he's allowed to happen in Afghanistan. Along with the tremendous surge in COVID, the border catastrophe, the destruction of energy independence, and our crippled economy, Trump said in a short statement. It shouldn't be a big deal because he wasn't elected legitimately in the first place, said Trump. But in late Sunday, panic mobs were flooding tarmac. It's just uh, amazing. Just amazing. Well, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Afghanistan with Mark uh, Shulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning Naples, longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Okay, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs>
0: back to the Bob Harden Show, and now here's your host, Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Lee Edwards, Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought at the Heritage Foundation. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of historycentral.com. He's an author, he's written several books on past presidents. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure, Bob.
1: Thank you, Mark. So uh, Afghanistan right now is uh not working out according to plan and uh, of course I talked a little bit about my ob- opening segment, but I'd love to get your thoughts about what's going on.
2: Okay, so let's let's talk a little history first and then move to, to this moment. First of all, We've had four presidents in a row that have had a have made big mistakes relating to Afghanistan. Each one in, in its own way. Obviously, the first mistake that President Bush made was the decision after after going after Al Qaeda and dismantling the Taliban to stay and try to remake the country and nation building and all of those type of things, yeah. uh, which we've been. Incredibly unsuccessful. And we were very successful when it came to, to Europe, but Europe had a history of democracy. And you know, look at Germany, and Germany had a history there. Japan, um, we were able to bring about democracy because we totally defeated them you know, in, in total. And the emperor, who was their, their leader, basically said, Listen to the Americans. But we've been totally unsuccessful. Think about Vietnam, Cambodia, and all those places you know, a, a generation ago. So we had the mistakes that uh, the, the President Bush made, and then we had President Obama coming and being convinced that we should put a surge in order that a surge would win. We could win the war with a surge. The military was telling him all we need is more men. He went along with it, and it accomplished the only thing accomplished, it bought some more time. Um, time is valuable if you can make use of it, but that seems to be not the case. Mm-hmm. Then you had President Trump, who was rushing to get out, made an incredibly poor deal with the Taliban, forced the um, Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters, and including uh, forced them to give up the man who is now leading the Taliban, and um, then pushed for an immediate withdrawal last in May. A terrible, disastrous policy. Um, And then followed by President Biden, who, who went along with that policy, just delaying it for two months, didn't put in plans... Um, in between. Um, but the, the, the mistakes here are not only that of, of the political level, it's the military level. We, have to, we can't get away from the fact we don't like criticizing the army. But the fact of the matter is they consistently, I mean, they spent 20 years training the Afghan troops and our intelligence operations were tremendous in Afghanistan, the amount of money and everything else, and yet no one or very few people warned the fact that um, the Afghan army may have had lots of Equipment, etc, but their willingness and ability to fight was incredibly paper thin and could switch in every moment yeah y- and in the last week or so is when I give the most negative uh, points both to the Biden administration and to the u s military the Biden administration for not realizing when some of those first <laughs> provincial capitals started falling that uh, that, the, that they were all going to fall, and that the there was nothing standing between uh, the Taliban and conquering all of Afghanistan. Uh, now, they could have gone one of two ways. They could have uh, threatened the, the Taliban with some sort of massive retaliation, or they could have at least said, okay, this is going you know, in the direction it's going in. Let's put in place uh, operations to get out all those people we promised them we would get out, and let's start doing it as fast as we can. Uh, but instead, we kept the bureaucratic. We looked for third-party countries. We did all sorts of things as if we had all you know all time in the world to do it. And finally, the military itself, for not having a contingency, what to do if Kabul f- was about to fall and how to get people out quickly. Um, I was telling you beforehand, the United States Air Force has 400 and uh, – no, excuse me, 200 and um, – 400, excuse me. No, one man, sorry, 222 C-47 um, strategic lift planes. Each one of them can carry 400 people. Yeah. Um, how long would it take to get 20,000 people out of there if there was a plan? Um, but there wasn't. Yeah. Um, so we have 5,000 troops theoretically creating a perimeter around the airport, um, and maybe we'll be managed to do that over a course of two or three weeks if the Taliban let the people come. But again, no plan, no, and that's the most... Um, most disturbing. And very disturbing
1: also. indeed. Well, it's clear to me that uh, President Biden got bad information from the military because he said that there's no way, you know, 75,000 Taliban versus our 300,000 well-trained uh, uh, Afghanistan troops, uh, there's no way that they're going to be able to make headway, uh, at least in a hurry, to that effect. And, uh, you know, the Afghans just didn't have the commitment to the to the uh, fight. They literally just turned over their arms and ran. And, well, uh,
2: look. You know, the biggest mistake we made. Hmm. We should have created a, a army of Taliban. Or, excuse me, of Afghanistan women. That was the biggest mistake we made. Who has the biggest uh, here to lose? It's the women of Afghanistan.
1: That's a good so point. We had
2: created an army of women. <laughs> they would be fighting tooth and nail against the Taliban. Well, that's Instead, a we have brand. a standard army of other Taliban of other <laughs> Afghani men. And okay, so we'll change sides again. Big deal. Nothing's going to change in their lives so drastically unless there were people who, you know, journalists or. Others who work with the United States, um, but no, the women are the ones who are going to pay the brunt. And I'm not hearing members of the so-called Democratic Squad or other feminists screaming and yelling, "We need to do something to save the women of Afghanistan." That doesn't seem to bother anybody. Yeah. Um, so, so on all levels, this is a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the Biden administration gets the points for the for, for the final part. Um, although no one really disagrees with the overall question, should we pull out? No. Um, and, you know, this. maybe there was no way of avoiding a collapse, but if there was no way of avoiding collapse, we should have been ready for a collapse. Oh, that's
1: exactly right. And, you know, um, market. Uh, I, I don't know that uh, you can verify this, but my understanding is that apparently NGOs were responsible for coming in and refueling the airplanes. Apparently, uh, and you're talking about the Air Force, uh, and... Uh, they didn't allow them in at the end, and so therefore they didn't have the fuel and the and you know, the capability to uh, to su- uh, provide provide the uh, support to get people out of Afghanistan.
2: I don't think that's true. I've not, not heard that, and there's no reason because the U.S. can fly tanker tanker planes above and to refuel in the air. The C- yeah. C-17s can be refueled in in air. Not to mention, you don't need you can come in with fuel, and you know you have enough fuel to take off and get to the next country in order to refuel if necessary. So I don't think that's the case. And The the problem, I, I've never heard of anything about the NGOs' part and all of this. Well,
1: I, uh, when I'm US talking about... The Air Force about...
2: also took over air traffic control. I mean, we have people who know how to do these things.
1: Yeah. I'm talking um, about BlackRock and the... Well, there's actually, usually... Well, BlackRock
2: is not an NGO. BlackRock is a, is a contractor.
1: Well, that's what I'm okay, speaking of. So, okay,
2: so you're mixing up two different stories here. The story that you're mixing up is the United States didn't allow the contractors to... To service the uh, Afghani Air Force planes, I'm not sure why. I think they were trying to figure out a new way of doing it to maintain their safety. I'm not. I don't have a good reason. I don't. There's no excuse for it, frankly. I think it was a big mistake. Mm-hmm. However, it has nothing to do with the, the evacuation at the moment. All right. Well, thanks and they're for They're not NGOs. They're just private contractors. Black. You know, all, all those companies are all private contractors. So interesting. Um, NGOs and national uh, non-government organizations like you know the UN or all those other things. They they had nothing to do with controlling fueling planes or anything else like that. Well,
1: thanks for your clarification, Mark. I I did confuse that story. But nevertheless, I mean, the the fact that we see, you know, this is not going to be another situation like Vietnam, and yet we see people being uh, airlifted off of the embassy roof, I mean, it is just a total disaster in terms of demonstrating American strength, organization, and leadership.
2: Look, the reality is um, the American people have to understand that. Al-Qaeda won. Al-Qaeda attacked the United States for the purpose of getting the United States to come and fight in Afghanistan. And they said, we will defeat the Americans once they come to Afghanistan. Now, the United States won every battle because of our superior uh, superior army and air force and everything else like that. But we lost the war.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And the Taliban won. Mm -hmm. The Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the 9-11, those who executed the 9-11 attacks... They won because America lost the war here. Twenty years of two trillion dollars down the drain with absolutely nothing to show for it. In fact, we're leaving the country in worse shape than when we came because when we first came, the Taliban didn't control the whole country. Some of those other warlords controlled parts of it. Now they control all of it. Yeah. So it's an absolute and total disaster. You know, multiple presidents, multiple political parties. Everyone is responsible. You know, everyone's not the blame game here. But that's you know. The blame game is a much deeper question here is um, you know what caused what made us believe we could do this yeah. um and if we were willing to do this we needed to be able to do this forever
1: or for a long well, long time. That's that's the point is basically we were on the clock obviously to uh, the clock ran out for the United States and I mean that the American people lost their resolve to uh, to do this. The point is that the Afghans are, are into infinity. They don't the the uh, Taliban is committed to the, you know, uh, Allah, and uh, there's no clock here involved. It goes centuries, and they're still going to be taking and maintaining the same point of view. So, uh, there's that aspect of it.
2: No, absolutely. I and mean, listen, it's a terrible thing in terms of the global fight against Islamic extremism. What what, is, what lessons is everyone going to learn? Yeah. Stick to your extremism, stick to your guts, and eventually you will uh, win. Yeah. And that's really a very frightening thought when you think about it for all the implications there are.
1: Now think about this, too. Um, you had so, mentioned the, uh, the people that supported us for over these 20 years that needed to get out of there because they were going to become targets for the Taliban for execution. Absolutely. The
2: ones who supported us, the women in the NGOs, yeah. all of those things. We, you know, I think we've been talking about it for a few weeks. I keep on bringing it up, if you remember.
1: I do. And uh, th- th- I, as I understand it, unless they can get on one of those airplanes, uh, they're stuck.
2: Right. So the question is, how long can we maintain uh, control of the airport? How many? How quickly can we bring in planes? We're not bringing them very quickly. From what I've been able to determine, we're talking about bringing in three or four or five a day, which is like insanely small.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, it's like uh, yesterday we took out, um, we brought out 500 people yesterday, and we hope to get to 5,000 a day in uh, by in a week because we don't have the capability at the moment. To remind listeners, I mean, people don't know, but There was a one day attempt to move all of the Ethiopian Jews out of um, Ethiopia when there was an agreement to do that. And Israel moved 10,000 people in one day. And Israel has an air force, in terms of airlift, about 2% the size of the U.S. Air Force. Yeah. And it has an airline that's 2% the size of the big U.S. airlines. I I don't get it.
3: Yeah,
1: exactly. So uh, where are they taking the people? Where, where in even the. uh... Okay,
2: so, so, so I think it's divided into two or three groups. So you you have all of those that have been already vetted fully and they had a permission to come, and those are being taken directly to the United States. I think to Virginia is the, is the place. Um, and I think those that are, don't, the vetting process has not been completed. They are bringing them to one of the U.S. territories and or to the UAE for temporary housing until, uh, until the vetting process can be completed. I mean, you know, the United States has always, until the Trump administration, accepted large numbers of refugees. In this case, we have a moral responsibility to take as many as has helped us. If we leave one person behind to help the United States, and they get killed because of it. Uh, then we are shirking our moral responsibility.
1: Yeah, I think we already have, and, Mark. Yeah. Quite frankly, unfortunately, you know, it's because of the lack of organization. Uh, in my opinion. Uh, Heads should roll. Generals' heads should roll as a result of this, because it obviously it was bad information given to the president. I, I, I also, the president, of course, was responsible for for uh, making these decisions. But irrespective, I mean, obviously it was they were not prepared to. to the they were they, their premise of the whole thing was based on false information.
2: So that's without a doubt. Without a doubt, and heads should definitely roll. Like I said before, it's not only a question of the wrong information. It's not having a contingency plan in case you're wrong, right. right? One of the things militaries are supposed to have is lots and lots of contingency plans. And, you know, you have one plan that's where you're going with because your intelligence says that A, B, and C are going to happen. However, the enemy always has a say in whatever plans you might have. And a good military has a contingency plan for all sorts of bad things happening.
1: Yeah. As Mike, this Tyson, clearly have been a scenario. as Mike Tyson once said, he says everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the nose
2: <laughs> Right? No, it's absolutely the case. Until you meet your enemy, your plan is wonderful. But someone else is playing a game also and you know, they may not be playing from your playbook. And this is what's what what's really the most disturbing part of this is the fact that there was no plan to um, to safely evacuate people if all goes bad. I mean we may succeed. I mean look we've thousand troops from the 82nd Airborne Division and a few other rapid forces can do a lot. Um, and I don't think the Taliban have any real reason other than embarrassing the United States to try to engage them because they just wait them out and let these people go. Yeah. Uh, will that happen? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so interesting. I don't know.
2: The only thing we need to learn from this once and for all is that you cannot trust most of the people you're negotiating with. So I, I and, and it goes goes through history, right? I mean, go think back all the way back to Munich and Hitler were in Chamberlain, right?
1: Yep.
2: Hitler promising he'll never doesn't want one more piece of land beyond the Sudetenland. land. Yeah. Peace in Europe. Yep. And of course, you know, we, we somehow um, in the West and particularly you know in democracies somehow project our own uh, set of values and beliefs on our enemies. Right. And we believe they're negotiating in good faith. No, they're not negotiating in good faith. They're just trying to get the advantage in the in the temporary period of time.
1: You know, uh, uh, Harvey Golub, the former president and CEO of American Express, made this comment. I was told that there was a report in the New York Times that representatives of the Biden administration asked the Taliban to not attack the U.S. embassy in the capital if they wanted to receive U.S. foreign aid. Imagine bribing of the attackers of 9-11 with not getting money if they attacked our embassy. This is an incredible act of cowardice. The threat should have been, we will bomb you into oblivion.
2: I agree 100%. And of course, we don't know whether whether, the, whether that was actually a, true, a true, true figure or not also. So let's not, we have any proof. But yes, absolutely. Uh, promising foreign aid if you do X, Y, and Z. If we give any foreign aid to the, to, to the, the new government of Afghanistan then we really need to have our heads examined.
1: So, Mark, let's just take a look at the impact that this could have on the world stage and how, for example, Russia, China, uh, some of our uh, adversaries might react to all of this.
2: Well, I don't know so much we have to worry about our adversaries. I think we have to worry more about our friends. And what I mean by that, I don't think Russia is going to do anything special because of this, or even China. China has its own plans uh, what we have to worry about is countries not listening to, being afraid of or be willing to rely on the United States,,
4: yep.
2: and, and that 's really the question. I mean I mean maybe for good reason not to rely on the United States, but look, one of the big issues that, that exists right now anywhere in the world is is the United, is the word of the United States worth anything? So on one level you have from the period of President Trump where he went back on all sorts of agreements, and so people are afraid on that level. On a second level, you know, you have both Vietnam and now, and now Afghanistan, two cases where basically the United States just got tired and left. And um, you know, does the American people have the will? And then, of course, you know, you have this other overarching problem that we've discussed many times over the last few years, and the fact that no one is willing to have an honest discussion with the american people of what the america's role should be in the world and how much are we willing to sacrifice to achieve that goal or not willing to sacrifice to achieve that goal
1: it's pretty and clear it's not nation building what it's pretty clear it's not nation building
2: it's not nation building but what else is it you know do we uh, are we willing to risk uh war with iran to keep the straits of hormuz open for the sake of argument right are we willing to Risk war with Iran to stop the nuclear program, yeah um where you know where would what happens if China invades Taiwan? Are we willing to go to war with China in order to stop that to aid Taiwan? Uh, these are all questions now, of course, part of the problem is sometimes you don't want a clear answer or you, your enemy will get the wrong answer, like happened in Korea, where Korea North Koreans attacked South Korea because they thought it was outside of America's sphere of influence um but we need to make these things and the American people have to understand them
1: i see i, I would Unfortunately,
2: have... we're not getting any closer to the American people understanding anything of these days uh yeah but
1: uh, uh i i think the uh the this whole debacle is emboldened the Chinese with regard to taiwan
2: uh yeah i mean it, it clearly could it clearly could um again look if you think the American military is in- is incompetent, then obviously you're willing to to take more risks yeah um, this certainly uh, brings a lot of questions to the, you know, the, the also the quality of our intelligence in other parts of the world. Absolutely. If, if our if our intelligence was so poor in a country where we had hundreds and hundreds of agents and were there and have been there for 20 years and have an infrastructure and everything else, I think Afghanistan was uh, the biggest CIA station in the world. Uh, so if our intelligence was so poor when it came to Afghanistan. What do we know about China? Yeah. What do we know about Russia? What do we know about all these places? Is, is our intelligence at all accurate?
1: Yeah, it's just... You a, know,
2: we ha- we're we in this situation where, theoretically, we should know everything because of our ability to do electronically, eavesdrop, and everything else. But it seems uh, with all the data we might have, we seem to know nothing.
1: Well, you know, we seem to want to uh, put that uh, focus more on the uh, American citizens than on, <laughs> than on <laughs> what's happening abroad. So, you know... Uh, it's just incredible to me that uh, these these generals. Quite frankly, I think our military is outstanding, and uh, the generals I think are the problem right now. We need to get people who are true leaders in those positions.
2: I don't know about that. In, in a certain level, what does it mean true leaders? I'm sure they're. All, I'm sure they all are true leaders. I, I think one of the problems is just the opposite. I think groupthink has always been a problem. In lots of organizations, and no doubt in the military as well, and no one is willing to really think outside the box or think in ways that you know contradict um, someone in high. higher in office. Yeah, you know, Israel learned its mistake during the Yom Kippur War when there were a bunch of young uh, intelligence analysts who uh, were recommending, you know, saying there was a chance of war was to break out. But the chief of intelligence and all the people in the higher commands didn't believe that because they had a certain set view. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: today, the, the, the situation in the Israeli intelligence services are that anybody from the lowest private can call the head of the intelligences and tell them something that, that they don't think it's making its way up the chain of command.
1: So interesting. Mark, um, you know, Mark, I just wish we could continue this conversation. I could go on all day, but I just genuinely appreciate your commentary on these very crucial issues. Uh, again, HistoryCentral.com is a website great for kids of all ages. I hope you'll check it out. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. It may be a better week for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, the uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show, and now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. I proudly served as board chairman for 15 years, and I hope you'll visit the website gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Lee Edwards from the Heritage Foundation. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us.
4: My pleasure, Bob.
1: Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education.
4: Okay. We work with young people of high school and college age all, age, all over the country and sometimes abroad. And we try to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, small government and personal character. And we do that through our very robust website, fee, F-E-E uh, through online videos and daily commentary and in-person events uh, quite often in all corners of the country.
1: Fee.org, again, is a website. And if you have a young person in your life, age high school or, or college age, uh, do introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education. It is a terrific organization, and it can really help Uh, kids uh, in that age uh, group. So, Larry, uh, you wrote a book, uh, a column. What is hyperinflation? Well, just ask the Venezuelans. Maybe you can tell us about it.
4: Okay. Uh, Recently, because price inflation has picked up here in the U.S., Bob, I've heard some people actually say that America is facing hyperinflation. Uh, And some have even said that the 5% inflation we have right now is hyperinflation. Well, while I'm very concerned about where it's headed, uh, we're a long way uh, from what is really hyperinflation. There's no hard and fast definition of how uh, rapid inflation has to be before it takes on the hyper category. But if there's a consensus among economists, it seems to be that you have to have it at around 50 percent per month which translates into a 13,000% inflation on an annual basis wow. before you can really call it hyperinflation. So we're a long way from that. But in Venezuela, not all that far south of the United States, uh, they certainly know what it is because they've had it for years now uh, to the point where a cup of coffee in the capital of Venezuela, Caracas, a cup of coffee is going for $7 million Boulevards. I mean, that, uh, that speaks to hyperinflation because their annual rates have been in the uh, hundreds of thousands of percent. Wow.
1: Unbelievable. I don't know how you maintain society in, a, in the fabric of, you know, the, uh, keep, keep the citizens settled with that kind of thing going on. It's just impossible. So uh, uh, and, and I just reflect on the fact that Venezuela was one time one of the richest and strongest nations in the world. Larry, are yes, you the, I'm
4: sorry. I, I can barely hear you, about uh, it.
1: I'm so sorry. I, I was just reflecting on the fact that uh, – I'll, I'll turn this up a little bit – reflecting on the fact that Venezuela was one at one time, one of the, back in the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century, one of the strongest uh, nations in the world financially.
4: That's right. Uh, this destruction of their economy and their currency has really happened in only the last 20 years. Uh, it was prompted by the uh, uh, socialist – Dictator Hugo Chavez and uh, advanced even further when he died, and Nicolas Maduro became the president. So they've had just two presidents over the time that their economy has completely fallen apart. About 15 percent of the population has fled the country. Uh, they've gone from one of the richest countries of Latin America to now the poorest. Uh, people are hungry. Uh, their currency is approaching worthlessness. It really is a uh, testament to what hardcore socialism uh, can do to a country, um, it, it's um, an absolute uh, total tragedy. You might recall that in uh, December of 2017, President Maduro announced that uh, as one way to combat inflation, his government was going to create a uh, cryptocurrency like like a Bitcoin, but uh-huh. produced by the government, and a lot of us just. Sort of dismissed that as, you know, why trust to this government who's destroying one currency? Why trust to it to uh, create a new one? And of course, uh, the uh, destruction of that cryptocurrency proceeded apace. It's it's not traded anywhere on any uh, foreign exchange, it's uh, not even used in Venezuela, Uh, it's completely worthless. So this is a government that has a track record of of destroying one currency after another.
1: Yeah, I mean, didn't Maduro in 2018 want to reform the boulevard?
4: Uh, Yeah, they've been, quote, reforming it uh, every few years. They lopped off, uh, I think, five zeros uh, uh, just a couple or three years ago, and now this year, in October, they're going to lop off another, I think, six zeros. So over the course of the last uh, very few years... They've had to lop off 11 zeros from their currency because uh, price inflation has been so rampant. But, of course, that doesn't fix anything. They're still printing like crazy. They're still running massive deficits. They're destroying their productive base. So the supply of goods and services is declining. At the same time, they're printing more paper money. Uh, so it's it's just a complete disaster.
1: Yeah, I remember back uh, during the... the uh Carter years, that uh, inflation almost became, and high interest rates almost became a a state of mind, and people had that expectation. It tended to just continue to accelerate. I'm sure the uh, Venezuelans feel exactly the same way, but uh, what can they do about it? I mean, how do they gain control again?
4: Well, uh, I think there's, there's really no hope that the crowd that runs the country today is going to do the right thing, because they are a bunch of uh, corrupt kleptocrats, uh, socialists, and communists. Uh, They don't really believe in wealth creation. They have no theory of wealth creation, only wealth confiscation. They buy votes with other people's money. So uh, until they get rid of this regime one way or the other, uh, this situation is not likely to improve. So there has to be complete regime change. And that's not likely to happen voluntarily. The Venezuelans at some point are going to have to say we've had enough and just rise up uh, and and get rid of this this regime.
1: Yeah. And sadly, I mean, yeah, he's a former bus driver, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> he has yeah. no credentials in order to be running a country. Basically, No, uh, but
4: I, I would rather vote for Ralph Cramden. <laughs> uh, he's... My- He's my bus driver for president, not uh, not this guy.
1: And and sadly, we're watching what's happening right now in Afghanistan and seeing thugs and punks moving in, taking over the country. And uh, sadly, you're going to see women treated uh, poorly. It's it's just so sad to see that people are just allowing this to happen.
4: Yes, it is. Uh, The world's a dangerous place. There are a lot of evil people, uh, often motivated by the uh, not much more than the lust for power.
1: Absolutely. Again, Larry Reed, President Emeritus, the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org, F-E-E.org is the website. Larry, always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. My
4: pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My
1: pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Lee Edwards, Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought at the Heritage Foundation, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Channel, here on the Bob Broadcasting Network.
1: You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees, Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too.
0: Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting us. We have with us Lee Edwards, Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought at the Heritage Foundation. Lee, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me, Bob. Good to be with you.
1: Thank you, Lee. Tell us about the Heritage Foundation.
3: Well, it is the the... We think, major think tank uh, in in Washington, D.C., particularly if you're looking at something which is uh, on the conservative side, uh, we look at all the issues, we come up with policy recommendations, and we've got a pretty good track record after some almost 50 years in existence.
1: Absolutely, Lee. Heritage.org, I believe is the website. Heritage.org. Correct. So, Lee, we uh, kind of lost cur- currently in all the, right now, Afghanistan is chewing up all the airspace right now, but Cuba, right now, so many people protesting down in Cuba, uh, just a, a huge problem with regard to inflation, with regard to uh, food, and uh, a number of issues. What are your thoughts well, I do
3: think that we have to ask ourselves, is there a possible shift which is in motion from Castroite communism to Western-style uh, democracy? And as you mentioned, Bob, those really large and popular demonstrations, not only in, in Havana, but throughout uh, the island. Uh, and to me, what was significant is that the anthem of all of those street demonstrations was a, a music video called "Patria y Vida," and uh, this has had seven million visits. Hmm. Seven million visits, and that's in a in a country with just you know ten million. So, to me, that's a sign that the, the Cuban people are tired. They've been waiting for sixty years for something to happen for the communists to deliver on their promise for free and open elections. And they're tired of waiting, and they're beginning to go to take you to the streets to, to, uh, to display their, their really extreme displeasure uh, with the Cuban Castro uh, communist government.
1: Yeah, so uh, right now the uh, United States, the, this administration, can do something, I think, to have an impact on the situation. Uh, for example, making sure that the Internet is available to uh, people in Cuba but uh, many people are saying, hey, the the response has just been very, very uh, uh, weak. Uh, any thoughts on that?
3: Well, I do think that there's more that we could do. And I think you're absolutely right. What we have to do is to keep that uh, that Internet open. And that's one reason why there were thousands of people demonstrating, because they were communicating via their, their iPhone. Uh, we have to continue the economic sanctions because they hurt the communist government. No question about that. We ought to demand the immediate release of Osorbo and other leaders of the San Isidro movement, uh, which is now the leading human rights organization in Cuba. And I think, finally, that uh, we should look to our allies and friends and form some kind of a coalition of nations to condemn Cuba and its treatment of the Cuban people. So there is much that can be done. And uh Fortunately, there are there are people like Senator Rubio and others who are pushing hard to make sure that we do more than just put out you know some polite uh, uh, press release.
1: So uh, there's a degree of irony in the fact that we have open borders on the south, and yet when uh, Cubans try to come here and come to the United States on boats, they're re- rejected, pushed away.
3: It doesn't make much sense, does it, Pop? It makes it really no sense doesn't.
1: at all. It's just uh, incredible. And I would have supposed the back, the thought behind that is that, well, they're likely to vote Republican. We want people who might vote Democrats to come into the country.
3: We well, you know that's so short-sighted, and we, we should be bigger than that. Uh, we, we should be defending the, the Cuban people and helping them and assisting the, the ways that we can, short of, you know, we're not talking about sending in the Marines. But we are talking about encouraging them, and here's the way that we can, particularly if we're talking about some of these brave young men who did this wonderful music video. And I would recommend to your uh, listeners, Bob, if they haven't, to, to turn it in. And I think that'll be it's, it's really lively, and it's got that Cuban beat, and it has a message of criticism of Fidel Castro and the Communist government. So it's a very brave and courageous music video as well as being something which is uh, very entertaining.
1: Yeah, Patria y Vida. Right. Patria y Vida, I guess you could Google that and find it. Yeah, the...
3: Homeland and, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, Life.
1: So uh, how close are, do you, do, what do we know about the machinations of what's happening in Cuba politically? I mean, how close is the, the, the of course, the, the government itself is basically uh, po- posing and printing as uh, very secure and, and capable, but uh, what's going on really?
3: Well, it seems to me that it's a sign that when the when the Cuban police, the communist police, treat the demonstrators with such brutality, you know, with clubs and guns and all the rest, and they're thrown hundreds of these uh, dissidents in jail, that's a sign of just how weak the, the government is. Because if they were in better shape, they wouldn't be taking these kind of extreme measures to put down the demonstration. So. Uh, to me, uh, I, I see signs. You know, you know, East Germany. To me, there's a parallel with East Germany. In January of 1989, the communist boss there said that the Berlin Wall would stand for another hundred years, and it was down and gone before the year was out. And so, to me, there's always that strong possibility that even a, a communist, seemingly strong communist government. It's not as strong as you think it is, or as they think they are.
1: Yeah, so interesting. Again, Lee Edwards, Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought at the Heritage Foundation. Lee, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Bob, for inviting me. All the best. Take care.
1: You too, as well. Well, that's close to a wrap here on the show. I have just a couple other things I'd like to share with you. A statement on Afghanistan by Nancy Pelosi. She denounced on Twitter for her unspeakable, foolishness, complete partisan crap, and distinguished to a (laughs) woman who may expect will face abuse and oppression under the Taliban regime. Not only that, but as a statement on former President Donald Trump's past plans for a troop downturn in Afghanistan, Pelosi praised the wisdom of Biden's troops withdrawal, which has ultimately brought the Taliban to the doorstep of the Afghan capital, the city of Kabul. The president is to be commended for the clarity of purpose in his statement on Afghanistan and the actions he has taken. Pelosi's statement said, "Once again, I want to acknowledge the clarity of the purpose of Biden's uh, statement and the wisdom of his actions." He concluded. Meanwhile, uh, there's wrangling and, and, and uh, difficulty between the Harris and the Biden uh, groups, as apparently by President Trump. Uh, president Biden asked. Harris to make a statement, she refused. She says, "My specialty is Haiti. I can't believe it. So incompetent." And uh, quite frankly, I think President um, Trump is right. Uh, Biden should resign uh, out of in humiliation because uh, everything that he's doing right now is not leading American people in the right direction. In fact, I can make I can't think of one thing that he's done that's positive, and I can think of a number of things that he's done that have really hurt the American economy like inflation, like uh, the pipeline, like uh, the open borders, like uh, in this trying to create the social state uh, with a $3.5 trillion uh, plan uh, for quote-unquote human in- infrastructure, and you can go on. Unbelievable. Well, that's a wrap here on the sh- uh, show today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Tomorrow, we'll visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state representative. Boo Mortensen will be with us, so we'll find out what's new with Boo. Seat Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. And my wife Linda will be joining us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.